I invite you to take the infallible record of the Word of God and turn to the little epistle of Jude. Right before the book of Revelation, we've spent five Sundays going verse by verse through Jude. We have learned the importance of what it means to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all given to the saints, the Word of God. We've understood through the inspired messenger the sinister and secret motives of apostates that creep into the church. We've understood the portrait of an apostate where Jude compared them to the Old Testament counterparts illustrating the severity and scope of their wickedness even from nature. We've examined the apostate's doom as well as our responsibilities as Christians living in a season where there is great apostasy. And now, after his thunderous exposure and scathing denunciation of these spiritual predators that are so skilled in deception, he concludes with a marvelous message of hope, a doxology of praise. Despite the rampant deception that he warns will slither into the church, despite the many false professors of faith, many of which will ultimately deny the faith that they really never even had. Despite all of this, Jude explodes with joy, offering eternal praise for eternal preservation, which is the title of my discourse to you this morning. And before we read the text, please hear this, my friends. Here Jude is going to reassure every child of God that the same power that saved us will keep us. That the same grace that forgave us will forever secure us. That the same God who chose us in eternity past will preserve us in eternity future. That the same God who elected us solely on the basis of His good pleasure will never unelect us. That the same God who sovereignly decreed our salvation, the sovereignly decreed that it will come to pass, will never allow our wills to somehow override that which He has ordained from the beginning. The same God who brought us forth in the exercise of His will, giving us new birth, as James tells us, will never abort us. The same God who gave us the gift of faith will never retract it. The same God who justified us through the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ will never unjustify us and condemn us. The same God who made us holy will keep us holy. The same God who sealed us and sanctified us will never unseal us and unsanctify us. The same God who transformed us by the power of regeneration, causing us to be born again, will never untransform us and allow us to return once again to being spiritual cadavers. The same God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light will never disqualify us. The same God who made us partakers of the divine nature 
will never rescind so glorious a metamorphosis. The same God who has reserved us for an inheritance that will not fade away will never cancel that reservation. Indeed, as 1 Peter 1.4 says, it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in verse 6 of that text, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Beloved, please hear this. Your salvation is eternally secure. This is a doctrine of enormous importance because, dear friends, if we could lose our salvation, we would, every one of us. Therefore, in light of His promise to empower His saints to... Preserve us to the very end, despite our sin and the apostates that we must battle. The Holy Spirit now speaks through his elated servant and he says in verses 24 and 25 of Jude's epistle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. O child of God, I pray that my discourse to you this morning will eradicate your fears, will strengthen and solidify your doctrine, and will reignite your hearts once again with hope and the assurance of salvation. And for some of you, I know that these eternal truths will be meaningless dribble. Because for some of you, you feel no real joy, no real love of Christ. Because frankly, you reject Him. And there are others of you who will likewise be bored with most of what I have to say to you this morning. Bored with these acclamations of praise because even though you have professed Christ, you do not possess Him. You have deceived yourself into thinking that you are His. Although, if you examine honestly your private life, you will see the hypocrisy of such a profession. For all who now find themselves squirming with conviction and even having a teeth-gritting resentment for what I have just said, may I say with all love that I pray that the Word of God will soften your heart rather than harden it. But make no mistake about it, it will do either one or the other this day. We can see three marvelous themes pertaining to God's glory in Jude's doxology. He is going to celebrate, number one, His power to preserve. Secondly, His promise to present. And thirdly, His preeminence to praise. And each one of these, dear friends, should elevate our hearts to new heights of of adoration for the lover of our souls. First of all, notice verse 24 as we examine His power to preserve. We read, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling into what? Why stumbling into apostasy? The theme of this epistle. 
The one who is able to keep you from falling away from the only truth that can save. Now, I understand Scripture does speak of many who will consider the gospel. There will be many who will contemplate salvation by faith in Christ alone. There will be many who will ponder the principles of saving grace. But in the end, they will say, no, thanks. They will fall away from that. And they will go back to some system of works righteousness, back to the law, perhaps. We read of this, for example, in Hebrews 6, 6 and in Galatians 5, 4. But my friends, those people do not fall away from salvation because they never had salvation. But what they fall away from are the principles of saving grace that they have pondered. They fall away from the fundamentals Of the faith, beliefs necessary for one to be saved, refusing to come in repentant faith and confess Christ as Savior and Lord. They are like those that Jesus described in Luke 8.13. Remember Jesus' parable of the gospel seed that falls in various places. These are the ones symbolized by the rocky soil. The Lord says they will hear, they'll receive the word with joy. But these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And who is this one who is able to keep us from stumbling to which Jude refers? Well, notice at the beginning of verse 25, it is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And friends, think of this. There would be no call for rejoicing if such a formidable task were left up to us, assuming we could even keep ourselves from falling. You see, there is no room for boasting in the doctrine of grace. I cannot share in the glory of my salvation. Notice Jude does not say, now to us who are able to keep ourselves from stumbling. To speak of such a thing seems blasphemous in and of itself. You see, friends, our only hope of eternal life is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only God, our Savior. Jesus made this abundantly clear in John 6, beginning in verse 37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And he went on to say, and all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. He went on saying, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And finally, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's fascinating if we read 1 Timothy 1.9 and Titus 1.2, we would learn that before time began, God the Father promised a gift to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a love gift of a redeemed humanity. And I might add parenthetically here, dear friends, that our salvation is all wrapped up in inner Trinitarian glory. And God's sovereign purposes to glorify Himself. Therefore, our salvation has nothing to do with 
our will and our glory. It's all God's will and his glory. Frankly, our salvation is incidental to their glorious purposes. And we read about this, for example, in John 17, 24, in Jesus' prayer to the Father. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 15:23 through 28, we read that at the conclusion of God's elective purposes, we read that the redeemed humanity promised by the Father to the Son will be returned to the Father by the Son as a reciprocal expression of infinite love. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, that God may be all in all. You see, friends, you must understand, it is God that saves and it is God that secures, and He does all of this for His glory. We read the Apostle Paul expressing similar doxologies, exalting God's power, not our own, to preserve us in the faith. In Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, now catch this, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now notice again Jude's inspired words, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The word keep in the original language was a term that can basically be defined as using soldiers as guards to protect something of strategic importance. And here, the guard is God Himself. This very truth was a cause of great rejoicing to Peter as well especially as he looked forward to his own martyrdom, dying on the cross himself. Remember in 1 Peter 1, in verse 4, he speaks of our eternal inheritance. He goes on, he talks about how that our salvation is protected by the power of God. And there, in the middle of verse 4, 1 Peter 1, he says that our inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. But some of you might say, but wait a minute, what must I do to ensure that I will someday be able to claim my inheritance? What must I do lest I somehow sin and forfeit my inheritance? What must I do to protect myself from my own foolishness lest I somehow exchange my faith for something that will not save Or in some season of rebellion, renounce that which I believed. Oh, dear friends, please understand this. You can do no more to lose your salvation than you did to gain it. It's all of grace. And as Peter says, it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Reserved. 
was a military term in the original language, and it has with it the idea of a garrison of soldiers that vigilantly guard and defend some precious possession. And because of the grammar of that text, it indicates that this is something that's being protected that already exists. And it will be guarded carefully forever. So indeed, my friends, our glorious inheritance is guarded by Almighty God and His angelic hosts. So neither Satan, the enemy of our souls, nor our own sin, our foolishness, our rebellion, nothing could cause us to forfeit, exchange, or renounce our salvation because, as Peter said in verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So indeed, as we come back to Jude 24, we read that He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and, notice, to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. For this reason, the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a magnificent promise of eternal security. Paul expressed this same unwavering confidence in his future inheritance to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.18, there we read, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. My friend, these powerful words of encouragement should forever silence those who insist that somehow salvation is not eternal unless you want it to be. That believers can lose their salvation. Those who erroneously believe that after regeneration, that marvelous transformation of all that we are, that the human will can change its desire and somehow choose to recant and to rescind its faith in Christ and apostatize. The Scripture is clear. True believers have been given eternal life. It is a present possession. And it is kept secure by Christ. John 10.28 And by the power of God through faith, as we've read in 1 Peter 1.5. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. Literally, in the original language, it says you are having been saved. Meaning salvation is a past event with continuing results in the present. Now friends, think of this with me. Every saint should join in on Jude's heartfelt doxology, exalting the one who preserves us in His grace, by His grace, because we all must admit that there are times when some mysterious delusion will come upon us, even as Christians. When we suddenly lose perspective. When discernment goes out the window. Those times when discernment is eclipsed by some, some novel and pernicious error. And we grab a hold of it like, oh my, this looks like the real thing. And like a man dying of thirst, we drink in some clever deception. 
without realizing that it is laced with deception, laced with poison. And other times we will fall prey to some insidious temptation and become ensnared in some life-dominating sin. Dear friends, how thankful we can be. How thankful we can be that the same grace that saved us will preserve us to the end. Charles Spurgeon put it so poignantly, and I quote, There is no stability in any Christian in himself considered. It is the grace of God within him that enables him to stand. I believe then the soul of man is, that the soul of man is immortal, yet not in and of itself, but only by the immortality which God bestows upon it from his essential immortality. So is it with the new life that is within us. It shall never perish. But it is only eternal because God continues to keep it alive. He went on to say, your final perseverance is not the result of anything in yourself but the result of the grace which God continues to give you and of His eternal purpose which first chose you and of His almighty power which still keeps you alive. Ah, my brethren, the brightest saints on earth would fall into the lowest hell if God did not keep them from falling. Therefore praise Him, O ye stars that shine in the church's sky. For ye would go out with a noxious smell, as lamps do for want of oil. Did not the Lord keep your heavenly flame burning? Glory be unto the preserver of His church, who keeps His loved ones even to the end. End quote. Friends, I have read all of the arguments denying eternal security. Over the years, I have exegeted on a number of occasions all of the verses. And at the end of the day, I find the position to be utterly untenable. There's nothing in the position that is compelling. In fact, the position itself rises and falls on but a few passages that must be exegetically and contextually tortured beyond recognition. Passages that are clearly contradicted by numerous other texts that speak with undeniable clarity. Moreover, and I want to say this kindly to those of you who believe otherwise, to say that one can lose their salvation demonstrates a disregard, perhaps a misunderstanding, of many other multifaceted and interrelated doctrines of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, that must be contradicted and denied in order for you to hold that position. It contradicts the presuppositions basic to the doctrine of salvation. Now, I want to challenge you to think deeply with me for a moment. And sometimes we have these opportunities here in this church where perhaps I strain you a bit theologically, but it's important. I don't want to dumb down the faith. I want you to rise up to know these great truths. So think with me. If you were to say that one can lose their salvation, you're going to see that this contradicts many of, the, well, frankly, all of the other components of the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. For example, it contradicts the condition of fallen men. The nature of one's depravity and his total inability to save himself. 
You see, we read in Scripture, like in Romans 9.16, that salvation does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, in other words, human effort, but on God who has mercy. And in James 1.18, we read that in the exercise of His will, He brings us forth. The verb can be rendered, He gives birth by the power of His Word. And as we look at Scripture, we see that man is absolutely spiritually dead. As I say, he was a spiritual cadaver. And apart from the life that God gives him, he would remain that way. And to say that you could lose your salvation would be to say that somehow that which God made spiritually alive, we can choose to kill and make spiritually dead. That we can unsave that which he has saved. It also contradicts the preparation for the work of salvation based solely upon the perfect character an eternal plan of God, contradicting the doctrines of grace and election and calling. In Ephesians 1.11, we read that we have been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. And in 2 Timothy 1.9, we read that He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, before time began. Now, are you going to tell me that we can say, well, sorry, my human will is now going to override your sovereign will. Take me out of the love gift. I want to do my own thing. Jesus said in John 10:28, I give eternal life, referring to His sheep, And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23, the Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul, and he says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. To say you can lose your salvation also contradicts the provision of salvation accomplished solely in the death of Christ. It undermines the significance and the efficacy of the atonement. You see, friends, God, God died specifically for His elect. And it doesn't anywhere say, unless that person that He ordained in eternity past decides that he doesn't want the blood of Christ to be applied to himself. Jesus says, it is finished. And there was no footnote that says, for those who choose to remain in me. Nor did he die on the cross and say, it is now possible. Salvation is now potential for anyone who chooses to believe, rather than it being actual for those whom He chose in eternity past. He didn't say, it is now possible, depending solely upon the free will of sinful man. Absurd. To say you can lose your salvation also contradicts the plan of salvation. The response demanded of men, namely the gift of faith and repentance and conversion, whereby God, in some inscrutable way, causes the sinner to become broken over his sin and voluntarily change the direction of his life by turning from sin to God. 
Now, may I remind you, while it is the sinner who really believes, man must choose. Scripture is clear that ultimately that choosing, his faith originates from God. Philippians 1.29, we read, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe. Second Peter 1.3, we read that his divine power has granted us to everything pertaining to life and godliness. And in 2 Timothy 2.24, we read, It is God who grants repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, are we to believe that man can somehow contravene these divine works? That man's will can somehow negate the power of God? I think not. To say one could lose their salvation also contradicts the products of salvation. That is, the immediate effects upon those who submit to the divine plan. Namely, our union with Christ. Our justification. Our regeneration. Are we to say that somehow we can negate that union with Christ? Are we going to say that somehow, though we have been justified, though the imputed righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, by the power of God, that we can say, I don't want that anymore. I want to be unjustified. Here, take your righteousness back. Are we going to say that regeneration, which can be translated born again, palingenesia, born again, which is that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead, are we going to say that somehow... That radical transformation where we've been given a new heart, a new mind, a new nature, the divine nature of Christ, that somehow we're going to give all of that back? Makes no sense at all. If any man is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. Unless he decides he doesn't want to be a new creature anymore and he wants to go back and be the old creature. You see, friends, our new creation is not retarded. It is not deficient. We will never have a desire nor a capacity as a new creature in Christ to somehow revert back to being the old creature. To say you lose your salvation contradicts the progress of salvation. That is, the ultimate effects upon those who submit to the divine plan. All that we receive in salvation, namely our sanctification, our perseverance, which is our eternal security, and our glorification. Ephesians 4.30, we read that the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. And in Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And there's no parenthesis that says, unless you nullify his sanctifying work by apostasy. Friends, think how such a doctrine contradicts the securing work of the triune God. Let's look at it from a different angle. I would submit to you that it denies the securing work of the Father. We read in Scripture that it is the Father who foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, chose us in eternity past, predestined us to the status of sonship in Christ. Beloved, if 
a genuine believer could be lost. Man would, in fact, be capable of thwarting the purpose and the power of God the Father, rendering His decrees subject to the will of man, and therefore utterly making them untrustworthy and useless. It also denies the securing work of the Son. We read in Scripture that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us. It is the Lord Jesus who appeased the wrath of God who prays for believers to be with Him. We read that He is our continual advocate at God's bar of justice. He is the one who continually makes intercession for us as the believer's high priest. If a genuine believer could be lost, it would imply that Christ's work as mediator is deficient and ineffective. It also denies the securing work of the Holy Spirit, who, as I have already said, regenerates us, gives us new life, transforms, indwells, seals us for the day of redemption. The sealing being a down payment, a guarantee of our future inheritance. He is the one who has baptized all believers into union with Christ and into the body of Christ, the body of believers. Now, if genuine believers could be lost, think of this, all of those divine works of the Holy Spirit would become invalid and must be rescinded and reversed. I think not. Beloved, there is no compelling biblical or theological evidence to support such an idea. So where does it come from? Such a position must be held by something far more compelling than the shoddy and easily refuted interpretations typically offered in Arminian theology. Something beyond honest scholarship and the principles of hermeneutics. But what is it? Well, certainly there can be many things, but I'm convinced that one of the dominant reasons why people hold to this erroneous view is that they have a legitimate frustration, even disdain towards those who profess Christ, but show little, if any, evidence of transformation, while at the same time finding great comfort in the fact that they are eternally secure. They claim to be Christians, live like the devil, and then flaunt their eternal security. And many of them finally reject the faith altogether. Well, the question is, did those people lose their salvation? Friends, that's the wrong question. Because you see, those type of people were never saved to begin with. They were never truly born again. There's so many passages that make this clear. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. I mean, Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 7, doesn't He? Where He contrasts the few with the many, the narrow with the broad, telling us that most who will call themselves Christians have deceived themselves. He says that not everyone who calls Me Lord will enter the kingdom. Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, but He's going to say, I never knew You. Depart from Me. You see, friends, these are the hypocrites, the tares amongst the wheat, 
those that wear a thin veneer of cultural Christianity, but they're devoid of the Spirit of God. They have never been transformed. There's nothing to restrain their flesh. The Spirit of God does not live within them. And their private lives are filled with every imaginable kind of sin. And many times those lives become public. You see, those are the ones who, despite what they say and what they appear, have no real love for God. They have no devotion to His glory. There has never been genuine repentance. There is no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for obedient living. They have no passion to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There there is no separation from the world in their life because there's been no transformation that would cause them to have that kind of a desire to hate what God hates and love what He loves. There's no passion for a prayer life to commune with God in their secret closet regularly. There's no selfless love, no genuine humility, no spiritual growth, no hunger for the Word of God. Because there's been no transformation of the heart. It's only a pretense of godliness. And that pretense typically only even shows up in certain circles. And of course, many times they will eventually fall away from the faith that they never even had. And most of these will ultimately manifest their ungodliness. And yet, sometimes they will claim... All the way through. Oh, but my salvation is secure. Evangelicalism today, I believe, has gone to great lengths to accommodate so-called carnal Christians. Those who claim they have, quote, unquote, accepted Christ. Yet their lives betray unrelenting patterns of disobedience and life-dominating sin. And many times these are the ones that utterly reject the gospel altogether. But rather than questioning the genuineness of their faith, because after all, they walked the aisle, they prayed the prayer. We got it right here. It was June 14, 1988 or whatever. Rather than questioning that, They simply redefine the nature of genuine saving faith so that it will accommodate carnal Christians, accommodate people who live sinful lives even though they claim that they belong to Christ, all the while flaunting their eternal security. But friends, what validates genuine saving faith is not merely your profession. It's the fruit in your life. Show me your life, not the date you prayed some prayer or walked some aisle. One advocate of this heresy, a teacher, preacher by the name of R.B. Thiem, demonstrates the utter insanity of this view. And I quote, It is possible, he says, even probable, that when a believer out of fellowship falls for certain types of philosophy, if he is a logical thinker, he will become an unbelieving believer. Isn't that interesting? An unbelieving believer? He goes on to say, yet believers who become agnostics are still saved. 
They are still born again. You can even become an atheist. But if you once accept Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation, even though you deny God, end quote. Beloved, that is a damning lie. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever shall deny me, I also shall deny them. And many have understandably reacted to people who live ungodly lives and even apostatize from the faith. But what they typically do is reject the doctrine of eternal security rather than rejecting their Judas Iscariot spurious faith. Well, Jude has given us his... his Wonderful, glorious doxology concerning His power to preserve. But I must move quickly. He also tells us about His promise to present. Notice verse 24. He says that He's going to make you stand, which literally means to confirm or to present. He's going to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Friends, can you imagine the horror of standing before a holy God in any other way than blameless with great joy? Can you imagine standing before the glory of a holy God, guilty, rebellious, disobedient, thankless, filled with pride and hypocrisy and greed and immorality and idolatry and covetousness? Can you imagine the penetrating eyes of divine omniscience peering into your very soul and seeing the thing that he absolutely abhors? That thing which is more offensive and noxious to him than anything else, namely your sin. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing his thunderous voice declaring your sentence? Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. You rejected me even in your hypocrisy in life. Now I will reject you for eternity. For indeed the wages of sin is death. Beloved, were it not for the cleansing blood of Christ, were it not for His saving grace and His keeping grace, that would be our fate. Oh, child of God, we have reason to rejoice because Jesus nailed our sins to a cross. You see, His atoning death satisfied the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us. He took upon Himself the sins of all who believe. And He imputed to us His righteousness so that someday He can make us stand, literally present us in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. You see, there can be no greater reason to rejoice than knowing that our sins have been forgiven. There's no greater motivation for worship. There is no greater incentive to be obedient And those who know nothing of these things, whose heart never resonates with such glorious doxology, those of you who perhaps right now within the sound of my voice do not share in the excitement of this doxology of praise and all that it means, my only message to you is that you must repent before it's too late. You must confess your sin You must agree with God that all that you are and all that you do is fundamentally offensive to Him. 
And that you have nothing to do to save yourself. You can do nothing. You bring nothing to Him. And then beg the Savior to have mercy upon you. And Jesus has promised that anyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast you out. My friend, the moment you experience the miracle of the new birth, you too will join in the praise of which I speak this morning. And you too will someday stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. But if you don't, you will also stand in His presence, but not with great joy, but with great horror. And in light of such magnificent truths pertaining to His power to preserve and His promise to present, truths that conquer our fear of losing our salvation, of stumbling into apostasy, because certainly we would if we could, truths that give us hope and joy and encouragement, Jude now concludes by acknowledging the one who makes all of this possible as we look thirdly as his preeminence to praise. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Indeed, friends, he is our only God and Savior, deserving of all of the glory And as I lived with this text over the last few weeks, I was reminded again of the glimpses of the glory of God that He has allowed other saints to see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And even now that we can see through Scripture. Remember that His glory would manifest itself through His Shekinah. That brilliant, brilliant, ineffable, dazzling light of His glory. It is the effulgence of His glory. This is the glory that someday we will stand. We saw this glory in the Old Testament. Remember, it was a consuming fire that descended upon Mount Sinai when God gave, the Moses, God gave Moses the law. It was this Shekinah glory of God that hovered over the ark of the covenant, the ark containing the tablets of the law, which had been broken, the cherubim over the ark, the Shekinah glory hovering over the ark, separated by the mercy seat. Because no one can come who has violated the law into the presence of God apart from the shedding of blood that was placed on the mercy seat. Because again, the holiness of God is utterly transcendent. It is utterly unapproachable apart from the blood of Christ. It was the same brilliance of His glory that led the children of Israel and protected the children of Israel through their wilderness wanderings. It was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It was the dazzling light of His Shekinah, the manifestation of His holy presence, That caused Isaiah to look up and say, woe is me, I am disintegrating. It was the brightness of the glory of God that was so overwhelming that it caused Ezekiel to fall on his face in utter horror. It was the incomprehensible glory of the Shekinah that appeared to the shepherds on a Bethlehem hillside when the angel came and announced the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the shining forth, the same glory of God, the austere, the shining forth that led the Persian kingmakers 
from the east all the way to Bethlehem and to the side of the Savior, King. And it was this same glory that emanated from the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when He peeled back His flesh and caused Peter and James and John to see that which was housed within Him, causing them also to be paralyzed with fear. It was the same glory that appeared to Paul when he was confronted with the Shekinah of God's glory on the road to Damascus. It was the same glory that caused John to pass out with fear when he saw the Shekinah glory as the ascended Christ in Revelation 1.17. And my friends, it will be the sign of the Son of Man, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of the world will see when He returns again in power and in great glory. And we are even told in Revelation 21-23 that in heaven there will be no need for lights, for sun or moon, for the glory of God will illumine it and its lamp will be the Lamb. Now friends, I say all of this to say this. Because of Christ, we will be able to stand in the presence of that kind of glory someday. And we will be able to do so blameless with great joy. He alone deserves the preeminence and the praise. As Jude says, all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the dominion. Indeed, He is the Almighty Sovereign that rules supremely and uncontestedly over all things. And all authority, Jude says, for who could possibly challenge the Lord of hosts? He is the one who is before all time, meaning in eternity past. He is the one that is now in the immediate present and forever. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The one who saves and the one who keeps. The one who has the power to preserve. The one who has promised to present. And the one whose preeminence deserves all of our praise. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in these eternal truths because we know that because of our own sinfulness, if we could lose that which You have given us, oh Lord, we would do it. We thank You that You have saved us by Your grace and that You have promised to keep us by Your grace. Lord, I pray that these marvelous doctrines will strengthen us and will fortify us as we live out our lives, giving us hope and joy and give us a renewed anticipation for that day in which, because of You, we can stand in the presence of Your glory, blameless with great joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.